Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The House and Senate are out of session, so we have a respite from budget news, but Washington and the world are still reeling after the aborted mutiny by Wagner Group CEO Yevgeny Prigozhin, who was largely unopposed in his drive toward Moscow, coming within 125 miles of the capital, prompting questions whether the mercenary and penal force commander had help from the Russian military and security forces. Those suspicions got added fuel from a New York Times article that said that the deputy commander of Russia's Ukraine war and chief of the Russian Air Force, Lieutenant General Sergei Surovikin, may have known about the plot that has gravely undermined Vladimir Putin's 23-year aura of invincibility. That aura has been cracked for Putin, not just at home, but as well as worldwide, including with uh, Beijing. This, as Ukraine appears to be making battlefield gains and Washington appears to be at odds with some of its closest allies about allowing Ukraine to join NATO as the alliance prepares to meet in Vilnius for its most consequential summit in many years and worries that the Supreme Court's decision to gut affirmative action will have adverse impacts on officer education on this, the 50th anniversary of the all-volunteer force. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend with the Center for a New American Security, and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, a must for anybody interested in the transatlantic relationship, our very own producer, Chris Cervillo, a former U.S. Navy commander and public affairs officer who is also the co-host of our Cavus Ships podcast and the co founder of the Provision Advisors PR firm, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Uh, one of our very own, uh, Michael Herson of American Defense International, uh, is taking uh, a break uh, this week. Dov, you've been watching Russia longer uh, than any of us. This has been an extraordinary series of uh, developments. Uh, whatever the circumstances and prognostications are uh, about whether Putin has or has not been uh, weakened, uh, we're going to leave. Uh, you, you can address that. Uh, certainly, I mean, you wrote a thoughtful piece in The Hill that Surovikin uh, is of per perhaps added importance to Putin uh, at this point. But again, time will tell. The operative question for me is how this changes how Putin is going to be acting uh, in the future, right? Does this embolden him? Uh, does it uh, sort of weaken him and weaken his hand uh, in, a, in a sense? And more importantly, how Washington and its allies need to be changing their tack if they're going to continue uh, to deter him? What's your sense on this? Well, first of all, um, what I'm hearing is that Putin is pretty determined to run again in 24 when they have the elections uh, next March, I believe it is. Um, so that already tells you where his state of mind is. Uh, we don't know if he's weakened or strengthened, um, but there are a couple of factors that have to be borne in mind. First of all, General Surovikin, although he nominally was demoted, has actually still running the Ukraine operation uh, behind General Gerasimov. One of the things I've heard is because Gerasimov is chief of the general staff, he has a wider span of control than Surovikin would have done just as commander in Ukraine. So even that part is kind of vague as to, you know, who's doing what. Now, Surovikin, by the way, the, the, there were reports all day today that, you know, he'd been uh, arrested or, you detained. know, taken in. Detained was the word. Detained was used. the word. 
But then his daughter came online saying, no, she'd been talking to him and he was just questioned. So who knows about that? Meanwhile, you've got Fregosian, who is now pretty well ensconced in Belarus. And apparently he's got thousands, maybe 8,000 people who've crossed over with him right. um, from his own Wagner group. Uh, and so what does that mean? And where do those people go? I and mean, basically what we're talking about here is a massive question mark. Um, of course, the Ukrainian war continues and the Ukrainians are still looking for their breakthrough. One other thing is, is that it looks like Shoigu, the defense minister, and Gerasimov are going to stick around at least for a while because should Putin replace them now, he, he would see that as uh, radiating weakness. So he's not going to do that. He's, he doesn't want to do anything that'll show he's panicking. Um, and then, you know, there, there are all sorts of other things. Uh, Jim and I were talking about this just before uh, the, the podcast started. The Russians are, are telling their people, look, the, the panzers, are the, the, the German tanks still have iron crosses on them as they're in the Ukrainian army. Doesn't that prove that Germany is fighting in this war we're back to fighting the Germans. It's back to World War II. The Ukrainians are Nazis, on and on and on. Right. So on the one hand, you've got this, this kind of, you know, semi-revolution, whatever you want to call it, uh, that Prigozhin tried to pull off. And it's not clear where Surovikin or some of the others were. My guess is they probably knew about it and decided to sit on their hands um, because they didn't think it would work. So on the one hand, you've got that. On the other hand, the Russians still aren't doing very well in prosecuting the war, but the propaganda, the internal propaganda continues uh, as it has been for some. Uh, it, it is uh, certainly very interesting to watch. And again, right uh, on Wednesday, when the story broke, the Kremlin was saying uh, that, uh, you know, this is all just gossip about Surovikin. Uh, and then uh, the, you know, as as Thursday dawned, we were hearing that there were detentions and questioning of all of these, uh, because, right, I mean, there was some speculation that Bordnikov, the FSB chief, or Petrushev right. on the Security Council uh, might also, uh, you know, have been the Siloviki, the security establishment may be complicit because they faced very little opposition, although they did shoot down a whole number of airplanes, including a command and control aircraft. So something like almost 40 right. Russian soldiers and service members lost their lives. Uh, Jim, I want to bring you in. I mean, and, is... and by the way, the, the, go ahead. And by the way, when despite the shooting down, the military didn't respond. But, you know, again, uh, it depends on what Putin wants to demonstrate. If indeed the reports I'm hearing are correct, that he doesn't want to do anything to Gerasimov and, and Shoigu, he may not want to do anything to the FSB people and have a major purge of the military at this time for the same reason, because he just doesn't want to show weakness. Um, Jim, uh, is Putin a bigger threat now than he was before this, or has this meaningfully weakened him? Right? I mean, how are we likely to manifest this and put your policymaker hat back on? On, on how it is you have to map the next courses, right? I mean, the administration has been very cautious, trying to do its best to support Ukraine uh, without provoking the Russians, right? I mean, and Chris is joining us in part to discuss the messaging on this. But what's your sense about the, how it is we need to be handling Putin going forward? Well, I think it depends on how you define threat. He's not the kind of threat that we've had over the past year or past 10 years, past 15 years. He, the problem now with him isn't threat as much as it is the turmoil that he brings, that he's, he's unpredictable. We don't know what he's gonna do. And there's, there's debates over whether 
uh, a cornered Putin uh, is going to lash out or is he going to crumble? There's there's very good people who are on both sides of that argument. So you said earlier, and it's true, there's massive question marks. Uh, maybe it was Dove who said that. But uh, but but in terms of Putin, how do you handle him? I think I think it is much more difficult now to try to predict what his future actions might be as he has become paranoid. Uh, I think he has become weaker. I mean, there's others making the case that, in fact, he's not weaker. He's he's uh, hasn't changed or he's stronger. Well, I, I think for me, my ingoing assumption is that he's weaker and he's going to be reacting to that. And there's got to be somewhere in this a, a house cleaning. I would think that uh, he is probably looking over his shoulder and he is trying to figure out uh, who was loyal and who might have been in on this. So I think we're dealing with a super paranoid totalitarian um, who uh, has a very small circle of trust now. And so as the West tries to deal with him and tries to figure out where he's going, it's become much more complicated and it will change as the situation changes in Moscow and in the Kremlin. In some of the countries on the East, uh, fear that the Wagner Group now, right? I mean, as, as Dove mentioned, and news reports have suggested that, you know, when Prigozhin went uh, to Belarus, he's getting tents in an abandoned military base, and, and there are a lot of soldiers and their equipment that went with him. Um, do they constitute a threat to the eastern flank of the alliance, or are they an exhausted force in many cases, uh, as has been the read from some uh, Russian analysts? I don't think they're exhausted. I think they're pumped. And I think they're a threat not to NATO or the East. I think they're a threat to Putin. I think, I think, I'm, I've said this even, before. Even in Belarus with Lukashenko and what he owes? Oh, Putin? absolutely. Absolutely. I think Lukashenko's probably afraid of him. Lukashenko doesn't want to, you know, run, you know, run up against uh, 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 Progozin either. But it reminds me of Napoleon on Elba. You know, Napoleon mm. has been, uh, you know, he's been, you know, put aside on an island thinking that he's going to be out of trouble and Europe can go back to a peaceful time. And uh, he's going to return to France. You know, he's going to return to France at the head of a big army and be right back at it. So I really think this is a, 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 uh, a time when um, uh, Bregosin is going to be looking for an opportunity uh, and looking for where the weakness is and where he can go in and not necessarily topple the Kremlin or whatever, but he, but he and his men there, are a threat uh, to uh, whoever it is that that um, represents uh, a, a, a direction or strength in Russia that is not what uh, Prigozhin wants. Hmm. You know, he's going to be there. He's a spoiler. He's looking for an opportunity. There's no doubt about that. By the way, <laughs> let, let me add that ahead, there though. are Russians. There are Russians who are speculating that Prigozhin might actually use his forces to go into Ukraine and, and look like a hero again out of Belarus. Remember, right. that's how it all started. Again, there are just so many question marks about Putin, about Prigozhin, about the military, about the FSB. Um, it's really tough to predict. One other thing, again, that I'm hearing is that Putin will replace Shoigu and Gerasimov, but only after the 24 election. So right. that's a long way off. It is a long way off. Um, and uh, I would I would point out, right, I mean, last week, there was some sense about whether or not this was all uh, just a maskirovka in order to be able to get Wagner and move it into Belarus, where it could uh, potentially uh, threaten uh, Ukraine uh, from the north. Although, um, you know, P Putin did get a pretty big uh, black eye as, as a result of it, or at least seemed weakened. Uh, Patrick, uh, Putin has spent the last 
two plus decades, cultivating the tough guy image. Uh, all of this was to project strength to other strong men uh, as well, right? Uh, whether it's Xi Jinping, uh, whether it's Erdogan, right? Whether it's uh, Kim uh, or or anybody else. The most important guy, really, though, in that in that pantheon uh, of champions is Xi Jinping. Has has this diminished the Chinese view of the Russian leader who already was sort of in a subordinate, weakened junior role in the partnership anyway, from a Beijing perspective? Well, yes. And the, the short answer, I mean, I think we're past uh, peak Putin power uh, if you're in Beijing. And so you're, you're, you're thinking about Past peak Putin. That's terrific. You know, you're thinking about succession now, even while you're also trying to shore up your your preferred strongman in Moscow, who is subordinate to you if you're in China's position. But again, from Xi Jinping's perspective, what this really is all about, Bhagwan, uh, in the first instance, is the alternative concept of world order. So your global security initiative, for instance, which is one of their uh, big themes. Um, depends on this multipolar world where you have multiple poles like Russia and China who are in direct opposition to the U.S.-led system. So uh, the fact is that if Putin's weaker, the Russian pole is weaker. That can't maintain. And therefore, China's going to have to do things, you know, again, one, prop up uh, Putin while while we can. uh, But if we can't, then let's think and accelerate those plans for what's our succession alternative, because we still need Russia as a strong pole for this global security initiative. Um, How is this going to be manifest in how China behaves, right? The Chinese are good at messaging sometimes the subordinate nature of a relationship. Like, what, what should we be looking for that Beijing will start doing, whether it's with us, with somebody else, or, or even actively with the Russians? We'll look for more uh, direct bilateral meetings, uh, sometimes uh, not very well publicized that may happen between Moscow and, and Beijing. Look for further doubling down on CCP, Chinese Communist Party control. Um, some of that's already well entrained anyhow under Xi Jinping. But for instance, the anti-espionage law that takes effect uh, this weekend in China, uh, which will have a, a, an effect of actually scaring away some of the foreign capital she hopes to attract, th- those things are still even more necessary now because China does not want to succumb to a, a potential political uh, problem, even though their system is different and they've got tight political control over the military and they've got tight political control over their own private military companies, of which there's some 20 to 40 that they use quite a bit, um, you know, they're nonetheless paranoid about uh, control. So internal, strong party control, right. closer diplomatic ties to Russia, but largely out of sight. Uh, and then meanwhile, probably not emphasizing a lot about the war. Uh, other than maybe pretending to, again, want peace uh, to break out as soon as possible and, and being willing to broker a peace deal, even if uh, they're not really sincere about it. And uh, Chris, I'm going to get to you in, in just a moment, but a quick word from our sponsors, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Chris, um you know, walk us through the administration's messaging, uh, right? I mean, the New York Times story about Surovikin was well-timed in, to at least spur some paranoia in uh, Moscow, whether that was the design uh, of it or or not. And then Washington was following that up with a whole bunch of other messaging on its part, right, that we're not responsible. How do you gauge the administration's messaging uh, on this? 
And and again, put your strategist hat on uh, because you've you've had some nice formal training in that. Kind of give us your sense on sort of how this changes the dynamic in the administration's messaging within that construct. If you look at um, John Kirby's press conference early in the week, I mean, you, you really see where the administration is trying to straddle um, and sort of whack-a-mole um, all of these different uh, issues that are being raised. Um, Jim talked about, you, you know, the difference in threat. And I mean, you saw Kirby try to address some of that um, as they, you, you know, as he was asked questions about, you, you know, Putin as a predictable strongman prior to uh, Ukraine. I mean, someone that we weren't happy with, but at least um, his actions were more predictable to now this fear that he's become a desperate dictator, um, especially after Prigozhin's uh, activity last weekend. And, and so, you, you know, you can see how the administration is trying to, uh, you know, thread the needle on that. And then you get into, as you and Dove were talking about, all of the different questions and how the administration is trying very hard to cover down on each of those questions to each of the different audiences. There's a domestic audience that very much wants to conflate what's going on with Hunter Biden to this you know, conspiracy theory that the U.S. changed the narrative by helping Prigozhin, you know, pr uh, presumably march on, on Moscow. I mean, no matter how ludicrous that may sound, there, there is a large group of Americans that would like to believe that. And so the White House has to kind of delicately handle with that. There's a, a group of folks that would like to know you know, where does the where would the White House fall um, on, you know, Putin or somebody else? Um, and I think the administration's tried very hard not to play into that. So you saw John Kirby, again, thread the needle on, um, you know, we don't pick sides in this. It's about um, Ukraine uh, and the security of Ukraine. And that's what the administration is focused on. There's very much a message to uh, partners and allies in terms of how we're dealing with this while still not losing uh, the eye on the ball in the uh, Indo-Pacific. Um, I think you saw that with the Modi engagement uh, last week. So um, I, I would give the administration high marks. Um, I think it's very difficult. Um, and then while they're straddling all that, you have the unfortunate leaks from Intel community, uh, from the Intel community that shows up in the New York Times that maybe kind of bounces them off message a little bit. So um, th this is a hard job that they're trying to do and, and hold all this together. Um, I, I don't know that there's any right way. Um, there certainly is a wrong way. And they, they seem to be doing their best to stay away from that wrong way. Um, do, was that a, you know, I mean, it, it seemed very convenient right after um, there's this, uh, you know, lack of clarity, uh, I mean, or, or certainly obvious that the security services may not have moved as quickly, you know, as, as uh, Dove said, sort of sat on their hands. Um, they also may not necessarily have had that many forces available, but I would have liked to have thought, that, you know, given the gravity, I mean, they were tearing up the M4 highway, right? So, I mean, at some point, one would have thought that they could have gotten a couple of troops uh, there if, if this was a significant threat. I mean, the FSB then said, you know, look, we, we were tipped off by this. And, uh, you know, uh, Lukashenko said that, you know, uh, Putin wanted to have Prigozhin killed. And so he sailed in there and sa saved him. W was this sort of a, a deliberate leak to sow chaos uh, within the Russian leadership and fuel paranoia, which was, you know, certainly one way of thinking about it. Or was this just, you know, unfortunately, some of the sloppiness we've seen from the administration with intelligence? I mean, which one of the, you know, was this sort of yeah, I mean, Somebody I'm not sitting in a Nehru jacket, stroking a naked cat <laughs> saying, ah, you know, this this is the way we should go. <laughs> or... 
Yeah, I, I I wouldn't give anybody that much credit. I mean, you know, unfortunately, Jim and Dove and Patrick have had to deal with this on the other end, um, where maybe somebody had a self-serving um, motive and they, you, you know, leaked too much information. It sort of felt that way um, from somebody that's watched this on the inside. I can't imagine that the administration would want to. Um, deliberately make a decision to share this information. I mean, it seemed more like a, a reporter worked a source and either that source had a had an ax to grind either for parochial reasons or wanted to feel important. It just didn't seem like this was a part of the U.S. statecraft in dealing with the Russia message. Certainly interesting on that front. I said earlier, uh, just to say that, uh, you know, after the report and all that, uh, the guy's daughter comes out and says he's fine. So right. who really knows? Exactly. Uh, you know, any anybody who knows what's going on, although I, I, I do think we have much better sources uh, in the Kremlin than I think sometimes uh, people give us credit for. Hence my uh, thinking about whether or not this was a strategic intelligence disclosure in order to sort of do shaping. Uh, and hey, I'm sorry, all of these guys are really bad dudes. So I really don't feel any twinge of guilt whether or not they're given up uh, in the shark tank uh, only to get up end up eaten or or zapped somehow um, one, more, one more point Joe just to, just to throw in is I think they're trying to I think Putin is trying to avoid creating a martyr as well I think once one of the reasons Bergozin wasn't right. found floating in the Volga and I think uh, as he goes through and begins <laughs> to pick out who's a who's a good boy and who's not um, he's got to be careful not to uh, take out a couple of people who then become a martyr and suddenly Bogosin has someone some or something to, to rally his troops around. So right. it's going to be careful how he deals with people that he thinks might have been on the wrong side of history last last weekend. Um, Jim, uh, that's exactly right. And that's why I'm hearing that he's not going to make a move against anybody for at least some time when it all settles down. That's when he'll have his revenge, not sooner. Um, let me um, uh, shift to you, Jim, uh, some interesting rifts uh, between um, Washington and its allies, right? Vilnius summit is coming up. The, the White House doesn't want Ukraine uh, to become a NATO member, while some of its allies and partners do. Second, uh, the administration appears to have uh, blocked British Defense Secretary Ben Wallace uh, from succeeding Jens Stoltenberg as uh, the alliance's secretary uh, general. Uh, that was based on also uh, the uh, Washington backing a longer term for the former Norwegian uh, prime minister, right? There was a one-year extension. There was this sense uh, that it was time for a Brit to have the job, right? Move away from all the Scandinavians and uh, Dutch and Danes who've who've had uh, the job for for many years now. Uh, George Robertson being the last Brit to to have that job. What what's all this mean uh, at a at a at a time when the alliance is? Um, you know, there is some sense that there is a little bit of frustration in Brussels with with Washington, right? I mean, a little bit of frustration even with uh, Washington turning to the EU for the training mission, even though NATO was potentially better suited to do the training mission. Um, you know, what are some of the, the messages and help us sort through all of this as we head into Vilnius, where the alliance is trying to put a very unified front? And you, you've been discussing for weeks, right, all the initiatives, very positive initiatives that are going to be discussed there. But talk to us a little bit about some of these discordant notes that will have to be addressed as well. So Vilnius will be 11-12 July. So it's it's right around the corner. And uh, and I think they're trying to tie up some loose ends before they get to the summit. There's a lot that's going to be rolled out at the summit. And there's trouble uh, in the alliance in just getting consensus on a lot of things. I mean, even the big uh, 
uh, defensive plan that Shape has put together. My understanding is they've had some trouble during the Chod's meetings with getting agreement on that. So you don't want to go into a summit and not have your loose ends all tied up nicely. And I think they're because of just the nature of these problems, they're not quite there yet. And the section issue was one of them. You know, there's a lot of traditional things that go into picking a section. You try to have balance, north, south, east, west. You try to have balance uh, in terms of who's had it, you know, more often than the others. And uh, th there's a move now to make them former prime ministers and not, uh, not defense ministers, which they kind of done in the past, which makes your pool smaller and more shallow. So it doesn't help you. So, uh, but a lot of these things have been upended because um, given what's happening with Russia and Ukraine and the war going on, the, the older allies um, are, are still approaching uh, picking the section the old way, while the, uh, the new allies, if you will, so the, who are facing Russia, Central East European nations, they want someone who's seen uh, as a warfighter. To them, this, the message of the new section needs to be sent to, to Kremlin that we're going to fight you know, we're going to fight the Russians if they do something uh, against a NATO ally. And so they, they are really looking for uh, a personality that's going to exude that. They, and I don't think they care so much whether it's north, south, east, west or all of the old uh, all the old issues. They they're trying to get someone who's going to look really tough. Uh, France still has its issues about the wanting uh, to have someone as section who's also uh, from an EU country. And so that's what hurt Ben Wallace more than anything else, I think. He was a defense minister too. And I was hoping they'd waive that, you know, requirement that you had to be a prime minister because I think Ben Wallace would have been good. But the French were dug in. I talked to them and they were they were not going to let a brick go in there uh, for, you know, for the EU reasons. So, uh, and finally, in terms of the White House, they've wanted uh, a woman to be the section, and I understand that. I, I think I think a lot of nations, which is why Ursula von der Leyen's name was mentioned so prominently. Oh, sure, absolutely, and um, and and also uh, having a section from one of the new allies as well. And so they were really looking at that. There are some new. Uh, some of the newer allies had some former prime ministers uh, who were who would have been a good fit there. And so I think I think really the problems were um, they just couldn't find a candidate that was going to meet so many of those requirements at a time when it really mattered. You couldn't paper over problems uh, you, that, 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 that had that my, a section might have brought in that. In fact, you needed to have someone who really projected that the image that Central Europe wanted. And if it was a woman, that would be great. And if it was from a new ally, even better, et cetera, et cetera. I think they just couldn't make the Rubik's Cube work. And they had to go back to uh, to Jen Stoltenberg uh, until, until something sorts itself out in the next year. And obviously, uh, Ben Wallace would have been a terrific choice in part because he's been so forward leaning, right? I mean, he's been leaning farther ahead with the UK government in terms of getting capability uh, to Ukraine, a point that uh, Dove has, has made um, many times. One last question about um, uh, Ukraine's membership, right? Um, there are members, uh, NATO members, who believe that it's time uh, to uh, offer uh, membership to NATO. Obviously, this was something that precipitated uh, Russia's ire going back to 2008 when Georgia and Ukraine uh, were on the table. The Bush administration was insistent on that. Um, do, is this, I mean, obviously, if the United States doesn't want it, it's not going to happen. But what should happen, uh, well, Jim? Yeah, you know, that's that has been quite the topic, both around Washington and, and in Brussels as well. 
uh, I think everyone is, has, is under, understands and have, uh, have kind of concluded that giving uh, Ukraine uh, NATO membership in the Article 5 while they're at war with Russia um, is, is not a good thing. And, and, and frankly, that was a bit of a fight to get everyone to finally agree to that. So, so that's off the table. So they say, okay, so what do you do now then? What can we do this over and above uh, the, the, you know, the Bucharest summit uh, 2008 statement that they will be in NATO? What can you do? So they've come up with a package of things uh, to show that this is a long-term security relationship um, with Ukraine to try to get that message to Putin that you're not gonna wait us out. So they're gonna come up with a package that says long-term NATO assistance in terms of training, in terms of equipment, that's gonna be a lot more than there's been in the past. No details on what does that look like, but that's what they're saying is that it's not just, it won't just be coming from nations, but it will actually come from NATO, the institution as well. So let's see what they come up with. They've also uh, upgraded, and I know in the NATO world, this is seen as something, but in the outer world, it's a bit thin gruel, and that is they're going to upgrade the, uh, the NATO Ukraine commission and make it the, uh, a, um, the NATO uh, Ukraine council. Uh, and, uh, you know, blah, 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 you know, NATO will roll out while wow, that's so great. But, but one thing, people say is that that's the title, that's the relationship that Russia had with NATO, the NATO-Russia Council. Now they're going to give it to Ukraine, NATO-Ukraine Council, and supposedly that will make Putin feel bad. <laughs> I don't know. That's that's a little. I, yeah. I, so, yeah. I, I don't I don't you know. I don't know. I don't know how bad that, that's that's yeah. going to make Putin feel. Um, uh, Patrick, uh, you've been uh, very uh, patient. Uh, give us, you know, as, as the whole world's attention has sort of drifted off uh, and been focused on the, the soap opera that is Russia, uh, right? People haven't really been paying all that much attention to the war where it looks like Ukraine has made uh, some small gains even before sort of the bulk of the counteroffensive uh, gets underway. Walk us through all of the stuff that's been happening in the Asia Pacific because uh, there's a lot been going on. There was a, a great event uh, with uh, Kurt Campbell and the chief uh, of naval operations, talking about the importance of AUKUS. Uh, not anything new, but certainly uh, some interesting elements there about the you know, commonality of submarine componentry and stuff like that, which was interesting. Um, but talk to us sort of broadly on what are the headlines that the world was missing as it was focused on uh, the Prigozhin affair. Well, at Hudson Institute yesterday, we had a private meeting with our Indian counterparts. They're getting ready, very excited about uh, President Biden going to India uh, this summer. Um, but they were very frustrated because in the two-hour meeting, we spent an hour on Russia. And one of their points they made to us privately was, look, in Asia, you'd be surprised at how much they don't want to talk about Russia and they don't want to talk right. about Ukraine. Um, so let's go to some of these headlines, uh, both here in Washington and the region. I mean, Chinese Premier Li Chang at the Tianjin Davos, this sort of major economic forum in Asia, uh, this week uh, did two things. One, he sought to portray the whole U.S.-led de-risking on technology as a dangerous choice that's going to obstruct economic growth. Um, China's really worried about a slowing economic growth. They're very worried about a uh, new um, slowdown, on, including tougher uh, restrictions on AI chips that were being talked about by the Biden administration this week. Um, and they really want to push back on that. Uh, and they know that in Asia, Southeast Asia in particular, they want to talk about economic growth. So if they can portray de-risking as hurting economic growth, they think they've got a narrative that's better there. Now, they also said, uh, Li Chang also said, the premier, 
that we shouldn't let governments determine the supply chain security. And, you know, eyes must have been rolling there if you're thinking about China's massive state-owned enterprise and government-compliant industry, um, because they're the ones in the lead of determining supply chain security that we're responding to. You think about, uh, you know, military-civil fusion, and you think about uh, their whole Made in China 2025 and, and so on. Um, now, South China Sea, um, this is the seventh anniversary of the arbitration ruling this next month. I'll be in, in fact, in the Philippines. Um, and um, there was the annual South China Sea Conference that CSI has held. It always brings together a great group of people. Um, you know, China has, they'd finished 3,000 acres of land creation in the South China Sea in 2016 when this when this ruling came down against them in favor of the Philippines. Um, and yet here, one of the main themes of this conference this year was how China is increasingly creating its own legal framework and just executing it. And you worry about this. I mean, this China is living in an alternate reality, not just with respect to, you know, so when we talk about a rules-based order, they're saying, fine, we are adhering to the rules-based order that we are creating in Beijing. Um, and it's right. a real problem. And, and you see this, and Bonnie Glazer had a great uh, presentation about seven major reckless military incidents in the past 16 months uh, in or near the South China Sea, including, you know, uh, chaff being fired at a Canadian plane that could have taken that plane down um, while it was enforcing UN Security Council sanctions on North Korea that China had supported, and it was flying in international airspace. So you're just thinking, what kind of a rule set does China think that they're abiding by. It, it's certainly not the coal regs and uncloths and queues and all of the things they have signed up to in the past when they're trying to have reckless maneuvers in front of our ships, uh, you know, whether it's in the Taiwan Strait or in the South China Sea. Uh, and what are we going to do about that? And, and China is resisting still the resumption of military-to-military -military talks. We've not even had a, a successful meeting on the military maritime uh, consultative process that we set up back, you know, more than 20, about 25 years ago. Um, in the last 16 months, we haven't had a meeting on that. So very little is happening. Now, Wall Street Journal had an interesting story updating where is the intelligence report in the investigation on the spy balloon. Uh, and, and what's interesting out of this latest reporting that's leaking out is how the clearly this balloon was for surveillance and spying. It was not for weather. And it used a kind of a, a hybrid collection of equipment, both commercial and Chinese made. Um, but it did apparently fly off course. And yet the Chinese made the best of it for spying. Um, and I don't want to go back to President Biden's you know, joke about why was why was Xi Jinping upset? Because he didn't know about what had happened and what was happening. And he was caught by surprise. Um, but but it does seem to be that seems to have been borne out in this coming intelligence uh, investigation report that we'll hear about. It's also interesting to hear how this is starting to get played on the political trail. Uh, Nikki Haley, for one, trying to show that uh, Biden is weak on on uh, China because he hasn't done more on, say, the spy balloon. On the other hand, um, Trump was also misplaying China because he focused too much on trade and he had no moral clarity. So interesting to see if the China issue gets a regular play on the campaign trail over the next year and a half. Finally, another event, the event you mentioned on AUKUS. And uh, I should just uh, parenthetically yeah. add, right, 
that the news reports are that the Chinese balloon was packed full of American technology that was being used to spy on the United States with, right? So I thought it was very clever that the Chinese had managed to acquire all this American technology, load it up on a balloon, and then send it over to the United States to gather yeah. intelligence on the United States. Was, a very, a very you Chinese. Have to, you have to tip your hat at that. That's right. that's chutzpah. They they did say there was some indigenous you know Chinese technology there mixed with the commercial you know best top of the line yeah. that they'd b- bought offline you know in America. Yeah. Um, so um, on AUKUS, uh, as you mentioned, Kurt Campbell and uh, Admiral Gilday at CSIS with Charlie Edel, uh, the Australian chair there, uh, moderating a great discussion. Um, you know they addressed some of the the key skeptics. Uh, concerns, right? You know, can the Australians really deploy a fleet of SSNs? Is this really going to happen? And, and, and Admiral Gilday went some way to saying, look, there are lots of hurdles. We know all about them because our militaries are discussing them very frankly. Um, but we really are building, you know, step by step this nuclear ecosystem in Australia. We're in fact graduating the first Australians from the Navy's nuclear power school in Charleston this next week. Um, and he really thinks, you know, ne- another step this decade of deploying up to four subs in Western Australia is going to be a, a real boon in this decade, not just, you know, 20, 30 years from now. Um, second, I, I think Kurt Campbell addressed how really the long-term nature of this program, while it's problematic, you know, can we can we stay the course? It's exactly this commitment to building this multi-decade nuclear-powered sub-program that lets allies and potential adversaries in the region know we're not moving, we're not leaving this region, we're not quitting. Um, and I think that's important. Um, it very much kind of uh, evocative of Rickover you know, we learn from, you know, failure, not from success. And we're just going to keep going at it until we make this uh, a reality. Um, and, and then the concerns about our own industrial shipbuilding, you know, Ken Groton and Newport News race to fill the requirements. And those are open questions. And those are going to continue to be big questions that will have funding implications and workforce implications. Um, finally, the uh, pillar two advanced capabilities question, they keep tantalizing us with Watch this space. We're going to soon announce uh, new partners who are going to come in on AI and cyber and ASW and unmanned. And um, it's going to be interesting to see who which countries are associated. But they keep talking about New Zealand and uh, possibly Japan, France, you know, Korea could be a number of others. Um, very important. One other report that came out of Australia that's well worth looking at out of uh, ASPE, out of in Canberra, their strategic institute was about the requirements for deterrence by denial and how they're pursuing at the moment, eight different strike weapons uh, for deterrence by denial, including very interesting ideas of these hypersonic cruise missiles that are lofted high. Then they can they can hit sea or land targets at hyperspeed, small, fast, distributed, um, very interesting. Uh, and then finally, the Korean Peninsula, you know, China had imposed the three no's on when it was the THAAD missile defense battery back in 2017. They said, you can't have any more of these, you know, you can't integrate with the allies. Um, at the same time, now they're talking about the foreign possibles, that the ROK cannot have a good relationship with China, can't have high-level meetings. If they're going to be sharing missile data with Japan and the United States, if they're going to be aligning more closely with the U.S. and Japan, that's a that's a, a growing sore point. And, and you're going to see Next month, right after Vilnius, I believe, um, Prime Minister Kishida, President Yoon, with Biden for a trilateral summit meeting in the United States. The invitation has been out there. It's been accepted. Everything but the date has been announced. But we're going to see um, even closer integration among these three countries because South Korea has increasing SIGINT capabilities. Uh, it can listen in to Qingdao, you know. Uh, Japan has increasing capabilities. And if you start to put these three countries together, 
wow, they are something that right. China is watching very, very closely. Uh, an extraordinary, I mean, first, that meeting will be totally extraordinary, putting aside a lot of the neuralgias that we've seen, unfortunately, characterizing the relationship and realizing a goal of diplomats over the past many decades. And I do thank Kurt Campbell, uh, not, not to embarrass uh, Kurt with uh, congratulations, but this is something that he has really been working behind the scenes, I think, very, very actively for a long time uh, and arguing why it's important for us to get to that point. So that's certainly going to be something uh, very uh, important to see. I mean, would you agree with that? Um, have I got that about right? Patrick, because I remember talking to him about this, you know, like 20 years ago, 15 years ago, as we, you know, like the need to get to this point um, is a real watershed. The Chinese are so unhappy that Kurt has been this successful. <laughs> um, and to me, that's a, a sign that he's been enormously successful. He's taken on, he's been, he's been one of the few people who could really organize this administration, work across the aisle, work with allies and partners, and get as much done as we've gotten done. Is it enough? You know, it's never enough. But at the same time, wow, very impressive. And he's worked himself to near death to try to get us here. So thank God he's been in this position. Uh, he is. Uh, he, he really is uh, somebody who deserves a presidential medal of freedom, uh, at the very least, when this is all uh, said and done with. OK, um, not a lot of time, unfortunately, left uh, in the discussion. Uh, uh, Chris, thanks very much for being patient. I do want to ask you this affirmative action question and, and have you chime in uh, in, in, a, in a moment. Dove, uh, really quickly, bring us up to speed on Israel, uh, because it looks like the police have launched incitement investigations into former prime minister. Uh, Ehud uh, Barak, uh, which is interesting, as well as uh, former IDF Deputy Chief of Staff uh, Yair Golan. Um, and there are folks who are saying, well, is this politically motivated? And then the Mossad, we should give a quick shout out to, did an amazing operation in Iran, of, of all places. I know that that surprises people that the Mossad would be active in Iran. Anyway, give us, quick, give us a quick uh, yeah. take on both of these and what they mean. Very quickly, uh, considering that Mr. Netanyahu uh, was inciting against uh, Prime Minister Rabin, who was killed about two week, a week or two after a major rally that Netanyahu spoke at, I think it's ironic. Uh, but yes, uh, they're investigating. I think that's called chutzpah, uh, not irony, but anyway. But these two uh, former leading generals. Yeah, but um, but the person behind it, the guy who's organized the task force that's doing the investigation is Ben Gvir, who is the far right minister for police, for internal security. And so clearly this is politically driven. There's no other way to look at it. The thing in Iran is just amazing because what this was all about, there's a fellow named Abbas, Abbas Lilo, uh, an Iranian who was organizing uh, an effort to kill Israelis on Cyprus. And Mossad got hold of him in Iran, got him to confess, and therefore were able to break up the plot in Cyprus. It's remarkable. It's, it's, it's something out of a novel. And, uh, you know, it must give shivers to the Iranian leadership. Uh, again, uh, Israeli deterrence is always magnified when it does uh, operations like this that are truly extraordinary and are saving lives someplace else. Uh, and everybody has a tendency of looking at that and going, yikey, Mikey. Uh, and, and indeed, right, I mean, given some of the brazen operations Israel has conducted um, in, in Iran uh, and around the world, uh, certainly something that I'm sure the Iranians are spending a lot of bandwidth on. Um, okay. 
Uh, one, other, one other thing, because we, oh, we never focus on Africa, and they've just named a special envoy to Sudan, this is the government, but the guy they named, John Godfrey, is already the ambassador to Sudan, and it's his first ambassadorship. So when you think back to people like Holbrook or Mitchell or some of the other special envoys, and here's this poor guy who's in his first ambassadorship. And now, in addition to being an ambassador, he's got to figure out how to do everything a special envoy does. It kind of tells you something about the administration's ability to really get its act together on, on issues that are not Ukraine, Russia, China and Israel in the Middle East. Uh, I would uh, I would uh, I would agree. Chris, I'm going to give you kind of an omnibus moment because you texted me some great uh, thoughts across the board in part. Uh, you know, issues with Ukraine coming in. Just give us kind of a quick uh, wrap up. You also had a good uh, uh, comment about Prigozhin not being a, another legendary Russian leader. Anyway, give us a kind of a quick uh, around the horn on some of the thoughts you were sharing with me. And then I want to ask you about the affirmative action decision, because last I checked, even though we have three former naval officers on this program, you're the only one to have gone to a military academy. Go ahead. I just, um, you know, had asked in, in our text, I, you know, or made the observation, Prigozhin is no Zukov. And, and I mean, it don't, you almost wonder, will it take someone to kind of fill that Zukov role, um, you, you know, post-Stalin to uh, to kind of right the regime? I, I don't even know if that's possible. But I mean, as Jim was kind of going through all of the the tensions and issues that, um, you, you, you know, the, the Russians uh, inside the, the Putin circle are dealing with, you know, it, you you wonder what extraordinary circumstance it will take to, uh, you, you know, to end the Putin regime on somebody else's term other than his. Uh, the other question I had as you and Jim were going back and forth about NATO was, you know, and, and Jim kind of mentioned it was, you know, was this decision to stick with Jan Stoltenberg is that a slight for Wallace or is it more of a reward for um, Jan Stoltenberg, um, given everything that he had to deal with uh, during the uh, the Trump time, um, you know, the hard work that he right. and his staff have done during, uh, you, you know, the war in, in Ukraine? Uh, you, you guys kind of uh, touched on that. Um, and then I, I did want to just make one point before we get to um, the affirmative action. I thought Patrick's points on AUKUS were um, we're really good. Um, and, and I just want to double down on, you know, there are lots of skeptics on how far this program will get and how successful it will be vis-a-vis -vis, um, SSNs. But I think that his point about cyber and all of the enabling technology and the work that can begin on that almost immediately that's what has really excited the naval community, um, the unmanned, the cyber, the EW, all of this that helps kind of destabilize um, and keep the Chinese on their heels. That's stuff that can begin almost immediately and won't take 8, 10, 20 years um, you know, to, to grow. So uh, I think we need to watch that just as closely as we watch the, uh, the SSN uh, growth uh, over the next decade. Um, and I, I want to point out, right, that the um, White House and, and Jim, uh, you highlighted it, Chris, you and I in our conversations uh, have highlighted this as well, right? I mean, the, the problematic nature of letting Ukraine in at a time when it's engaged in a hot war is is pretty much the White House's, you know, they're not saying we don't want it. And there'll be some, you know, interesting diplomatic language, you know, to sort of open the door for that. But we also understand what uh, the administration's concerns are. Okay, on affirmative action. Um, obviously, 
not a surprising decision in part. This court was constituted to deliver judgments like this, just like in uh, repealing Roe versus Wade. I mean, a whole uh, series of other, uh, you know, purely conservative down the middle judgments that the court was assembled to deliver, and it is delivering on those. Um, the challenge here is, you know, I mean, for for some, this is a triumph of fairness and merit. For others. It's the manifest unfairness for failing to take into account racial disparities in society that impact access to higher education, especially for selective schools. Um, and schools themselves are trying to, you know, apparently failed in their argument that, hey, look, we're trying to be as diverse to help everybody in that community learn and, and have uh, access and, and contact with folks that they might not, not otherwise have contact with. Some retired military officers, and I, I did hear Wes Clark uh, on this, distinguished West Point graduate. Uh, I believe he was first in his class, if I, if I recall correctly. So I apologize to General Clark if I've misrepresented that. And also he was a Rhodes Scholar. And one of the cases he made is, look, the service academies only generate 30% of the officers required in the United States military. 70% come from the ROTC uh, ranks. You obviously have to be accepted to ROTC. You gotta get a scholarship, but then you have to get accepted into the school and he was wondering whether or not this would have an adverse impact in terms of diversity in the composition of the officer corps going in the future. And the Supreme Court appears to have given an out for the military academies on this. Chris, I know you've been talking to uh, folks in the department uh, and uh, right, I mean, in your Naval Academy cadre, your Navy cadre, your military cadre, um, what, what is going to be the net impact of this? And is this something that downstream does have very negative implications uh, in terms of the composition of the officer corps, uh, and we're given the United States military does, you know, is overrepresented in minorities, you know, certainly in the en enlisted ranks, even if in the officer ranks, they are not as well represented, right? I mean, if you had that 38% representation, uh, you, you know, you would, you would have more than one or two black senior leaders, one of whom is going to become the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Yeah, I mean, the challenge has always been to have your officer and senior enlisted corps be closer uh, in representation to that of uh, the enlisted uh, force that they're leading. Um, and there's lots of uh, writing and lots of studies as to why that should be the case. I, I don't think that from a um, force shaping standpoint, the Pentagon is particularly worried about th this ruling. As you mentioned, the service academies are given an out. Um, they feel like that they can manage this with the way the ROTC process is. Um, I mean, that's not to say that they're happy with the um, with the ruling. I mean, certainly the White House was not was not happy. But I think um, for them, it's more of a psyche issue, a psychological issue, and what this you know says to those that would uh, decide to serve and those that are serving then it is a force shaping issue, right? I think they feel like they have the levers that they need to pull um, both in the accessions and in the retention pipeline to, uh, to continue to work towards the goals that they have. I, I think that they're, they view this similar to the um, decision on abortion um, in that, yes, it will affect a small part of the force, but what message does it send when you roll back you know, a decade or so of uh, decided case law. And um, it appears that one branch of government is pivoting hard right, um, you know, and, and what, what effect will that have on those serving and, and you know, the, the types of uh, conversations that occur around the force. So big picture, probably not a huge impact uh, other than it just sows more discord politically that our, our service members are more and more having to deal with. 
Um, any uh, last uh, thoughts uh, from anybody on the panel, including our three uh, former military members and, and then Dove, uh, very quick uh, comments from all of you on how you uh, regard uh, this, seeing as how we have two uh, former, we have three former commanders uh, on this uh, program. Vargo, can I just make a comment? Not not so much for the Navy. I think Chris covered that well, but um, thinking about civil uh, civilian education, uh, I'm affiliated with Carnegie Mellon University. I'm just reading the letter from President Farnam Jahani, and, and I'm sure every president of every university has probably written a similar letter today. Um, saying, look, there are lots of ways to enhance uh, opportunity for education um, while complying with the law, even as now ruled, and uh, including providing uh, tremendous resources for covering uh, financial assistance and so on. So I think there are enough institutions ingrained in a lot of universities that they're going to continue to carry on and find ways to make sure that the campus is diverse uh, and, and therefore Presumably, uh, those who might go on to the military from civilian universities uh, coming from a, a rich uh, background. Uh, I'm not saying they're not going to be problems and challenges, but uh, we built a lot of institutions in the decades past in various universities to provide greater opportunity and access. And I think those are going to mostly continue. Jim? Uh, just to foot stomp what um, Patrick has said uh, and Chris, too, uh, it's... Um, so I think to me, the ruling is just more a reflection of this conservative court. Uh, and, and so there's political waves uh, that are really going to be roiling us for a while uh, over and above the, the particular issue at hand. And on the particular issue at hand, I, I agree with Patrick. I think I think we have no choice uh, but to to be uh, to really build on the institution's uh, that have been created within, you know, higher academics to handle this, to handle diversity as an issue. You know, when this first was done, uh, you know, uh, the affirmative action, that was years ago when it was a real desert when it came to uh, trying to trying to be a more diverse society. Uh, and since then, and again, Patrick said this, since then, I think the schools and other parts of society have built uh, other ways that that uh, we can we can get at it, and we're going to have to use those and pump those up until this, you know, until uh, you know, until we finally get a, a long term solution. But we've got to turn to what we have built already and really build that out. Uh, Dove, let me give you uh, the last word because uh, at the time you were going to college, it was only a few years earlier that Jewish quotas were dropped at leading institutions, right? In terms of how many Jewish students you could have, um, give yeah. us your sense on 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 all of this, where where we've you know where where it is we need to be and how it is we get there, and you get the last word. Okay, obviously Asian students felt that they were already discriminated against. And so in a sense, that was racial too. Uh, but there are many people saying that what really the way we ought to be looking at this is on the basis of means. And if you look at means, then of course you're gonna focus on the minorities that have been underprivileged. So I agree with what's been said by my colleagues that they're gonna find a way to get diversity because quite frankly, you need that. We are a diverse country. And uh, if everybody has the same point of view, you wind up producing uh, buggy whips instead of cars. And when we're dealing with the competition with China and the trip and the troubles with elsewhere in the world, we need to have creativity and you don't get it if everybody looks the same and thinks the same.
Everybody, thanks very, very much. Uh, really appreciate a terrific conversation. As always, I want to wish all of you a very happy Independence Day holiday uh, as we celebrate the greatest uh, nation in the world's 247th uh, birthday. Thanks very much. Hope you all have uh, a terrific weekend, terrific holiday, a terrific week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so very much. And a very special thanks to our audience for joining us. Uh, and a special thanks to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program possible. The Sunday Business Round table will be on Sunday, but we are going to take Monday and Tuesday off for the holiday. We will reconvene uh, on Wednesday uh, with the Look Ahead program with Sam Bendett and Byron Callen. And then on Thursday, we will have a very special uh, program an all-power program. Normally, we bring you the air power program, uh, but this week, we'll have the all-power program where all of the hosts for all of our programs are going to be joining us for a mid-year review on uh, what we're seeing from the Pentagon and each of the military services, and I hope you tune in for that, and we'll see you again soon. Thanks very much.